Thanks for downloading this episode of Cork Talk with me, Tim Atkin. A weekly conversation with some of the most famous people in the world of wine. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Nomacork by Vinventions. Driven by a commitment to innovation, the new plant-based Nomacork Green Line offers significant improvements in wine closure performance. Thanks to a rigorous oxygen ingress rate, you can decide which cork is best for your wine, whether it's for young and fresh wines or for those with ageing potential. Passionate Andalusian and Professor of Law at Granada University, Jesus Barquin is also one of the key figures in the modern sherry revolution. Equipo Navasos, the company he co-founded with his friend the winemaker Eduardo Ojeda, has pioneered single cask as well as unfortified wines from the region. Our fascinating chat covered the nomenclature of sherry, famous vineyard sites, Edgar Allan Poe, and why Amontillado is his favourite wine. Hello Jesus, how are you? Very well, thank you. And you? Uh, I'm really well and lovely to have you on the podcast. Um, you're a lucky man, you're in Andalusia, aren't you? Well, uh, it's where I belong, or <laughs> sort of I belong. I, I, I don't have any other choice. <laughs> you're in Granada, right? But you were born in Sevilla, right. weren't you? Right. I was born in Sevilla from a family mostly coming from the north of Spain who yeah. uh, migrated to the south so as to uh, go away from hunger. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, here we are. And tell us a little bit about your upbringing. I and mean, what did your parents do? Were, were they were they academics? Because you're an academic as well, obviously. No, no, not at all. Not at all. My, As I said, my grand. My grandfather on my on my mother's side, he came from Soria, mm. sort of half uh, mid uh, part of uh, of Spain in Castilla, and my father came from Cantabria, from the north of Spain. In both cases, from very small towns where it was difficult to to go ahead, so they were. Uh, migrating and looking yeah. for a better life and they, they as so, as so many people did right yeah uh, yeah and yeah. Um, my mother and my father actually my mother started it um, uh, put a, a grocers in in sevilla and they were grocers uh, shop uh, shop uh, keepers and they it's it's, it's been the it's where many of my of my family uh, work uh, currently in that area in the food business also oh, okay. in the restaurant yeah. business and in uh, and with uh, with cattle in the mm. in the with in cattle. the town yeah and, w- and was wine part of your life did they sell wine in the in the shop yeah the yeah yeah true they they s- actually my my mother who is in the in her eighties. Yeah, she hasn't retired. She's still working. <laughs> She's still there selling. Yeah, stuff. that's that's what uh, what she enjoys. And uh, they were specialized in in fine food, in in jamón, in yeah. Iberico, Iberico jamón mm. fed with acorn from uh, the, the Sierra of Huelva. <laughs> yes, probably the best. And charcuterie in general, and wine. In, in mm. those times, there were no big supermarkets, so you could focus on on good quality products and that was more or less my my context but i i prefer to study <laughs> yeah I mean, exactly I mean, people in the wine world associate you with the keeper navajos uh, navajos obviously uh, which we'll talk about in a minute but you're also 
very, very distinguished academic and, and university professor. You're, you're a catedratico, which is a very high level of academic at the University of Granada. It, what's your discipline? Tell us what you, what you research and what you Well, what you I'm a about. professor, or in, in American terms, a full professor of mm. criminal law. I'm a, mm. an academic lawyer. And, uh, well, I, I, since in Spain, uh, criminology has started to, to be serious a couple of decades ago. Uh, I, I've also done a little bit of uh, criminology in my research, but uh, basically, I'm a, I'm an academic lawyer on criminal law. And, and any crossover with wine? Presumably not. And not in general, but there is one. Probably my most uh, cited paper is one about uh, uh, driving under the influence, and it's an experiment that uh, I made because. Uh, the uh, official uh, publications, what the authorities say about uh, how much uh, uh, wine or how much beer you can uh, drink before getting drunk or or before um, uh, being subjected to an addiction in Mm -hmm. driving under influence didn't match my experience. So I did an experiment which is published in a few different uh, stages of it in, in a few um, uh, academic uh, publications. And, uh, you didn't I, drive I, the I car guess. drunk, did you? Did you drive the car drunk? No, no, not at all. It was about uh, <laughs> measuring what level of uh, ethanol impregnation uh, was in, in, a, in a cohort of, uh, of people, yeah. mostly students who collaborated with it, after uh, social drinking, so to speak, after what we, yeah. it was three doses of, uh, of wine. We did it mm-hmm. with wine for a number of reasons. And, uh, and it, it, it was quite interesting. It was quite interesting to, to double check that it actually what the authorities, uh, trumpet is not mm-hmm. accurate. They probably, well, they probably know, I'm sure they, over alarm the, the population. But at the mm. same time, I must say that I'm not sure whether that's wrong or not. Uh, I, it's, uh, <laughs> probably, I, I have my guess that they do well in over alarming population. One level is uh, the policy about it, and another level is to know exactly how it works, yeah. which is I, I must say, as I resume, that it's never exact. It depends a lot on on each uh, on each individual. Let's talk about wine because well, not just drink, drinking and driving, but actual sherry. Because you were a wine lover well, long before you went to the actual business of wine, almost by mistake. I mean, did you just get interested reading about it, drinking it, um, visiting wineries? And it was mostly focused on Andalusia, wasn't it, where you live? In well, when when I was uh, young, my, the main the main uh, leisure activity in my family was going to restaurants and to, or a few restaurants of friends of mine, and uh, there was a and the t- context was one of uh, eating well and drinking well, but drinking well mostly uh, Rioja and cherries, which are the traditional uh, top wines in. In Spain, so quite early, I think that was eighteen when I started to take uh, notes of my tastings and and so on. And I discovered that in my in my uh, the comparisons I made of wines from different parts of the 
of the world. Actually, when I started to get curious about that, um, since the very beginning, I found out that uh, sherries in general were underrated mm. and, uh, and they were affordable. And they were also um, easy to taste and retaste many of them because of the alcohol content and because of the structure and the and the age if if i was happy to try a bottle of let's say vega sicilia it was a one one time uh, shot mm. while if i bought a bottle of a venerable sherry uh, i could taste it along one year uh, two years yeah. or or even more, which was and, quite and it doesn't helpful. oxidize any further. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's, I mean, I love I love your idea of of, of um, un- underrated and affordable. We all want yeah, that. <laughs> Tell us about Equipo uh, Navazos. Um, how did you meet Eduardo Ojeda, uh, who's your partner in the business? I think it was somewhere quite unglamorous, wasn't it? You met him. <laughs> well, yes and no. I was. Uh, I had by by then. By when we met up, I had already been writing about wine for El Mundo Vino, mm. for El Mundo, the the Spanish uh, uh, newspapers who had a very strong wine section, El Mundo Vino, led by our common friend uh, Victor uh, de la Serna, Victor which Serna, is. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a clue person in the yeah. in the evolution of uh, wine appreciation in Spain, in my opinion, mm. and. Uh, I, together with my friend, another academic, uh, Alvaro Giron, we had developed a sort of of a way of thinking uh, that count, uh, that was uh, against many of the uh, settled ideas about uh, about Sherry, out of our own experience. And um, since Eduardo had uh, just, uh, well, a couple of years before, uh, had got the position of director of the Group Esteves and mm. had got in a in a position where he was uh, starting to make wines coming from a single vineyard, mm. different wines, also wines coming from from vineyards in in Sanlúcar. It, uh, we were both uh, Alvaro and I very interested in in talking with him and checking uh, his experience with our ideas and our experience are are. As tasters, so uh, in a in a wine fair in Ciudad Real, Cenabin uh, was well not not very glamorous, but quite a serious place with yeah, a lot of good. wine. Yeah. And Eduardo uh, was uh, doing a, a, a serious tasting of his wines. I asked a couple of questions. At the end, I came to talk with him, and then he invited me to go to the bodega. I went there, and well, since and we it. we got yeah. along, and yeah. Alvaro also, and we started to to catch up each time I went to Jerez because I, I I've always uh, been visiting the area every year a couple of times because I I like Sanlúcar. We went there for short holidays in Christmas, <laughs> and so. Yeah. And, so and then that, you started doing this thing where you started finding single casks of sherry, really, a botas, uh, in, yes, in bodegas from, and, and bottling them. The first one was what? It was La Bota de Amontillado Uno, right? Um, right. And you named it after Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Cask of Amontillado. Where, where, where did you find that cask? Well, a couple of nuances here. The context is that, is that uh, Eduardo then started to, well, uh, we, we were visiting bodegas anyway because we, we were writing, Alvaro and I, a series of articles on, on Amontillados and on Manzanillas and so on. 
And Eduardo one day uh, invited us to visit a small bodega in Sanlúcar, uh, Sánchez Ayala. We tasted 400 casks of manzanilla, wow. but it was a, it's a special way of tasting. You don't taste with the palate every cask. You mm. smell it, and if you find something which is uh, shocking, is when when you taste it. And when we finished, we did a uh, shockingly good. You mean shockingly good or, <laughs> yeah. shock, or shockingly, shockingly bad. weird? Weird. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So because he was checking the quality of wine of his company that was aging there. And then we went to the own company um, Soleras. Uh, we found there was an Amontillado of uh, very good uh, quality, very, very nice, and uh, uh, that had been uh, unbottled for almost 20 years because there, there was not uh, a market for, for it. Actually, the market for this uh, dry-aged uh, sherries is quite small. It's, it's still quite small. And, uh, well, I, I had the idea that uh, we, we might uh, bottle it for us. Why? Because I had been, for, for a couple of years I, or more, I had been bringing bottles of, uh, of different wines, taking out from the casks, to the typical um, uh, wine dinners or wine meetings, like the ones we met up. It was in yeah, Stockholm, with, uh, I remember. House, yeah. at, at Andreas Larsson's uh, yeah. celebration of his uh, yeah. success at the sommelier uh, contest. Yeah. And you bring bottles and you share them. And we found that uh, uh, they were quite successful, that people... People like them and say, oh, this, this is a, a, a sherry that I really like. Many people who are not or who use, use not to be too fond of, of sherry. Why don't we bottle it and we put a, a proper label so that we can bring it to this type of meetings? And, uh, as and, a and wine that, of that our was the sense. first one? And that was the first one. How, how yeah. many bottles did you make of the first it one? Was, in the end, it was 1,000 bottles on average. Okay. More, well, not, or, no, no, sorry. 700, I think it was. 1,100 yeah. was the second one, I, I guess, I think. And, and, and then it became very successful, didn't it? And, and you started to, to do others. It yeah. was successful since the very beginning. The, the very first day we, I, that we uh, uh, told, I, I told my friends, uh, wine lovers, wine writers, sommeliers, winemakers, uh, that we were going to, we, we had in mind bottling it that, but uh, that we needed a minimum quantity so as to make it uh, doable. Mm. Uh, the, the response was uh, massively positive. Mm. So uh, that it was a success in the very beginning. And some of them, or even many of them said, why not uh, a Manzanilla? Why not a Fino? Why not a Pedro Jiménez? That's the reason why we put since the very beginning the number one, because... Mm. Uh, we knew we were going to to make uh, more since the very first days ah, because there but it was became a, a business, an interest. Didn't it by, by, by it became a, a bi- yes, it became yeah. a, a business uh, a couple of years afterwards when okay. when that uh, structure was no longer sustainable. We we yeah. needed uh, to to do payments and things like that. So at the beginning, it was sort of very in- informal. I mean, you're focused very often on single casks, but you're also focused on single vineyards, aren't you? You know, Machadnudo, Miraflores, places like this. Just tell us a bit about those vineyards. Were those vineyards famous historically? Um, you know, are sherry lovers paying more attention to, to the crew now than, than they were, say, 10 years ago, thanks to you? Yes, but it is a comeback. 
is this is a comeback because there are, we have documents and we have written about about them in the in the 18th century with the classification of the crews in Jerez and Sanlúcar and all all the area and yes probably uh, places like Miraflores and Macharnudo and particularly Macharnudo Alto have uh, uh, maintain its uh, or their prestige along uh, decades. It, mm. This was uh, disseminated in the 60s, 70s, when the winemaking changed, when instead of uh, fermenting the wine in small batches, most uh, uh, often at the same houses of the vine, as they were uh, called, they started to ferment in big inox tanks at the premises located in, in centralized positions. That changed so sherry, everything. Sh yeah, sherry became industrialized in a sense. Exactly. One yeah. And yeah. a few things were lost. One of them was the appreciation of the of the crews and the and the vineyards and the provenance of the of the wines. And in the last uh, uh, 15, 10 years, uh, I think there has been a comeback, a little bit of a comeback to that, yes. Sherry famously has these three towns, doesn't it? Jerez de la Frontera, El Puerto de Santa Maria, San Luca de Barameda. Um, are, are they very, very different as, as places, particularly not just in, in terms of the styles they make, but also the way the wines age in those towns? Enough different uh, for... Uh, justifying uh, uh, a name of a yeah. different provenance in general, yes. But uh, there is, in my opinion, there's even more difference uh, in the vineyards. So yeah. all that is something that should be uh, reviewed. Actually, it has been reviewed recently because you've mentioned three, the three mm -hmm. traditional towns of the Triangle, while these wines, these... Uh, traditional wines of, uh, uh, made in the area have been also made for centuries in other places like Lebrija, like Trebujena, Chiclana, Chipiona, even Rota, Puerto Real, in times till quite recently, even in Cadiz. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, but they, they have opened that. Now, all those places, not Cadiz, because there, are, there is no more bodegas in Cadiz, but now you can bottle cherries that uh, have been aged in Chipiona or uh, have in, been aged in places, Chiclana, yeah. in any of yeah. those places. And I think a further step is uh, to require or to regulate that uh, when a wine comes from Sanlúcar, it's not only about aging it in Sanlúcar. It should not be only about okay. aging it in Sanlúcar as is yeah. the current uh, state of uh, of the of things, yeah. but uh, it needs to come from uh, vines located in, in San Lucas. Yeah. That is the big difference. Yeah. If you allow me, um, Tim, I must uh, uh, clarify something. It's true that we started by finding a wine and finding an owner of a wine who was uh, kind enough to allow us to to bottle it, and it's true that occasionally. We still bottle exceptional wines that have been aging for decades, sometimes even for more than 100 years, uh, under the care of different producers. And that's a privilege. But mm. I must say that uh, Kipo Navazos 
Uh, already since 2006, our second wine, La Bota de Fino, was not a wine that we found out and bottled. It was a you're wine making that wine. Yeah, you're making had been wine. made by Eduardo, because we okay. are, Eduardo Geda and me, Eduardo Geda is a winemaker. Yeah. He yeah. has been the director and main winemaker at uh, Jose Esteves for more than 20 years and before at Croft for another 20 years. And uh, and he has been making wine. Part of, of the... Th- 20 something or 30 million bottles he made every year went to the mass market or to the brands of his house. But a small part of it came for Equipo Navazos made with a special idea to be produced in that way, you know? So it's a bit complicated, but it's not accurate to, to consider us just as sort of treasure hunters. It's part of it. It's true. You make wine as well. Yeah. We make wine. You're talking about complicated. I like your line. You said that, you know, you're quoting the Greek, saying that beautiful things are difficult, which I like very much. Exactly. Sherry can be complicated. To somebody com- coming from outside and looking at all these different names, you know, Mantenia Pasada, Fino Amontillado, what are all these different things? Can you just give us a quick overview of, of the styles, main styles, particularly talking about biological and oxidative aging? Talk about yeah. the two ways that, that, that Sherry can move. Yeah, that is it. Well, in, just in words and and briefly, it's com- quite complicated to accomplish. This is a complicated task. But basically, we have finos and manzanillas, which are aged under floor and whose typical uh, alcohol col- content is fifteen in most cases. But it can be sixteen or sixteen point five uh, because the alcohol can increase, but it's. Uh, uh, due to concentration. Then on the opposite, we I'm going to talk only about dry styles, which is 95 or even more percent of the production and which is the what are, are the features of, of the region. And so you're excluding PX and cream styles, yeah? I, I will exclude PX yeah. so as not to yeah. complicate because uh, PX, it's... Uh, it's um, um, but it's, um, it's made out of raisins and mostly in Jerez, mostly the PX comes from Montilla Morilis. Uh, okay. From yeah. The base, uh, the base wine is, uh, bought in Montilla Morilis, which is uh, something regulated in the, in the, uh, the current laws about mm-hmm. lawmaking in the, in the area. So if we concentrate on dry wines, the lighter styles are Fino and Manzanilla and the, Oxidative styles are or is mainly Oloroso. Oloroso is a wine that is basically only aged under oxidation. In order to prevent the floor to develop, you fortify it uh, above 17%, because otherwise you risk that there is that the floor will develop. And there's an, an intermediate, two intermediate styles. One of them is Amontillado, which is a wine that has been Fino or manzanilla in first place, and once it's a, a it's an aged, it's a already um, a grown fino or manzanilla, you shift it to oxidative um, aging, mm. and it becomes an amontillado uh, after aging oxidative for a number of years. That explains why it's, in my opinion. Uh, intermediate uh, um, categories like Fino Amontillado 
should have never been forbidden, as is the case, because you the the, the real world doesn't uh, work as our minds. We work with categories, but mm. uh, the real world is a world of uh, um, of uh, nuances of mm. uh, gris, never black and white. If you have a fino and you want to make an amontillado of that fino, that necessarily will go through an intermediate state between fino and amontillado. At the beginning, it will be more fino than amontillado, then will be more amontillado than fino, <laughs> but there will be an intermediate state, which will be yeah. that. And uh, then there is the palo cortado, which is a little bit more complicated even. There is no mystery in it, by the way. Ah, but, because uh, I, mean, I noticed that you, you, you were involved with the, with the project, weren't you, with the film, uh, a documentary yeah. that was called The Mystery of Palo Cortado. There is no mystery, right, you're saying? There is no mystery. It's, uh, that's a matter. Well, this, this, uh, this documentary was my idea. Actually, the original um, script was uh, written by a friend of mine, Andres Ales, who is a, a writer for documentaries and so on, and, and myself. But then the producer... And the and the director, uh, they made whatever they wanted. They gave it the name. They gave it the name, and they well, they did things that I I don't agree, but uh, it's their privilege. Tell us about palo cortado, because it's another intermediate style in a way. It's intermediate because palo cortado, uh, while you can characterize amontillado in terms of process. You have a fino or a manzanilla, and once it's a grown fino or manzanilla, you oxidize it and you get an amontillado. Palo cortado is not defined by means of process. Actually, if I have to explain someone how to make a good palo cortado or an excellent palo cortado, I I can do it, but it won't be the process, the difference. It would be the same process as for the oloroso. The difference is that for making a palo cortado, you would use the finest uh, must, the finest wine use you would have instead of a a, um, a rich one that is the one that you typically use for an oloroso. So a palo cortado is a fine oloroso or an elegant oloroso. And does, does palo cortado ever see floor or not? It may, because yeah. uh, traditionally, but things have changed a lot. Traditionally, uh, before um, industrialization and before fermenting in big uh, inox tanks of mm. even thousands of liters, or t- tens of thousands of liters, uh, when you uh, wine, when wine was fermented in, in casks, in 600 liters uh, cask, maybe you had a big uh, bodega where you had every year three thousand casks of wine fermenting and then developing floor for becoming fino, typically ah, fino in Jerez. Yeah. And then went and tested it. And some of them took a different way. Okay. And yeah. maybe you needed to add some alcohol, a jar of alcohol, and you cross yeah. with a with a line. That's the palo cortado. It's a, a line that you cross with another one because you have you have added a, a jar of alcohol. And but now everything is much more predictable. You don't have to be checking so many casks. So you need to know how to make it. 
And one of the ways to make it is by selecting verifying wine and aging it as a a fine oloroso. You've described Amontillado as the king of Andalusian wines. I presume the king means that you think it's the best. Why is that? Why do you think Amontillado is so special in a way? A good Amontillado has has been before a very good Fino or Manzanilla. And then if you go on... uh, um, respecting the process, doing things well, and aging it properly. For, uh, Amontillado gets a, a sort of a, a level of uh, complexity and at the same time of uh, um, verticality in the palate so that you can drink it very uh, smoothly. That probably is where you can reach uh, the top uh, or the maximum of uh, intensity, complexity, layers of aromas and flavors and so on. But they would put at more or less at the same level a good old Fino, Fino Amontillado or Manzanilla Pasada, okay. where you, yeah. you have at the same time drinkability and mm. uh, complexity. I mean, you're a very good taster. You've even represented Spain in international competition. But you know, when we taste sherry or montilla, which is another expertise of yours, does it? You say it requires a special effort from us. What, what sort of effort do we need to be making when we're tasting these wines? Is it, well, is it imagination in a way? No, no. I, I think uh, this mention probably is out of context. It it mm. was probably when I said so. It was when people from Spain who are used to drink these wines, uh, talk about international uh, tasters. You need to get into them. They are not easy. They are uh, wines, uh, they are an acquired taste, as uh, we all know well. I think that advanced uh, wine tasters are uh, used to to them, but most people who like wine in general or people who approach approach wine, uh, well, a, a, a fruitful wine, even a red fruitful wine, with uh, where there are not so many um, um, amaros or uh, bitter bitterness, bitterness, bitterness yeah. and yeah. and, uh, and um, flavors which are not usual for for any uh, have, has they they have to to make a special effort and to get sort of over a fence so as to get the 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 best of of uh, of these sure. wines that's what i mean mainly in terms of acquire acquiring a taste okay i mean i always think it's interesting when you're tasting a, a solera um and solera is a system of fractional blending that there could be components in the in the solera which date back what to you know 200 years which is amazing you know when napoleon was in spain uh, i always find that that to me is part of the joy of tasting sherry that this leap of, of historical imagination in a sense. Do you, do you think that's true? Well, it's true in infinitesimal terms. That's true. Uh, and probably if you want to... I, I don't have such a romantic approach to wine, uh, truly. <laughs> I'm more... I'm more about uh, what's what is in the in the glass. If uh, what is in the glass uh, seduces me, it's okay, and I, I I I don't care that much. Probably in that case, I care more about its provenance. But it, if it's not, if I don't like it, I don't care about the history. Uh, doesn't matter the history. So, much. so yeah. in my personal uh, point uh, approach, but uh, I understand that it's. Um, 
it's part of the of the story, you know, and it's part of, yeah. uh, and it's true in, in infinitesimal terms, it's true. But uh, if you have a wine of, uh, uh, if you have a wine of 60 or 80 years, which as I said, we have been lucky to, to bottle a few of them. It is true that there will be a wine with more, even much more than 100 years inside. And that yeah. can be very, to me, what that uh, provokes is um, uh, veneration and respect. Mm. You, okay, I like you, that idea. You must do things well. When you are dealing with uh, with uh, stuff like that, uh, you have to be very respectful. I, I like that idea. Let's, let's talk a little bit about still wines, because one of the things you've done as Equipo Navathos is, is being real pioneers of, of these dry wines, dry still wines, uh, unfortified wines, basically. And you, I think the first one you did was with Dirk Nieport in 2008. Did those unfortified wines exist historically in Jerez? When, when did sherry become fortified, as it were? They needed to exist because otherwise you wouldn't have the fortified wines <laughs> you know yeah. you, you yeah. before fortified but I, I mean, you have a wine but commercially in no yeah. in the 80s they started to to put in the market a, a relatively simple wines looking for a, fruit and for not uh, um, for uh, not not a complicated uh, profile of for mass market, actually, for many years, the the best uh, the best uh, sold the wine in Spain was a wine from uh, well from the area, El Castillo mm. de San Diego, uh, mm. known as Barbadillo, for many mm. many years. Which yeah. uh, it was a wine made of uh, Palomino Fino and mm. trying not to cause uh, too much impression in the palate, but uh, mm. to, to, so that neutral. It, it would be yeah. neutral, yeah. 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 But the origin of our Navazos Niport is the origin of Finos and Manzanillas. At the very beginning, we have documents of the discussion. At the beginning, it was in Sanlúcar. It was in Sanlúcar uh, when they were uh, providing wine mostly to the taverns in the Bahia de Cádiz, in Cádiz and uh, Puerto de Santa Maria and so on. And when they started to, the, 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 the owners of the, of the tavern discovered that the wine improved by the Solera system when mm. some wine was mm. uh, added for refreshment. And uh, in parallel, in Sanlúcar, they also discovered that by adding alcohol, to the to the manzanilla, they made the wines more resistant because um, uh, there is something we have talked about uh, biological aging. When when you have an age uh, a wine aged in a biological way like fino or manzanilla, uh, you you can do very few things because with the wine you can add almost nothing because there is a living. A creature inside the Saccharomyces cerevisiae, which is the floor, the yeast floor, the floor, yeah, yeah. living inside and doing its work. That means mm. that you have to you have to trust that nothing bad is going to happen, but something bad can happen. Mm. Mostly that the environment is very suitable for other microorganisms, mm. like mostly the acidic bacteria and the Brettanomyces. Yeah, and uh, they found out out of um, of an uh, empirical uh, uh, way that if you added alcohol, the wines 
tend to be more resistant. And more stable. Yeah? More stable okay, because, yeah. and that has been uh, studied uh, afterwards, mostly in the 20th century, because 15% is very good still for the yeast, for the floor yeast, but is not so good for these uh, competitors, for these other competitors. Interesting, I didn't, didn't know that. If you age those wines unfortified at the average age, which is 11.5, 12, 12.5, which is the average uh, alcohol level of uh, wine use in the, in the area, then you are facing a high risk of, the, of having a vinegar instead of, uh, of a wine. So at the very beginning, we have this discussion. I mean, early 19th century, 1802, 1803, a discussion between the, the winemakers in the area. One, some of them were in favor of adding some uh, uh, spirit uh, for this reason, and mm. others said that that changed the style of the wine the so they were against yeah. the, the character. And uh, so at the very beginning, before they discovered this, this the manzanilla, uh, was uh, well, unfortified. Uh, unfortified yeah, yeah. at the very tell, beginning. Tell me something. I, I want to ask you about this because there's a lot of talk about the sherry revolution, and you've been a big part of that, really, with what you've done, both with fortified wines and and, and your unfortified wines. Is that being reflected in in sales around the world? Is sherry becoming more popular again, or is it still regarded as something that you know your grandparents used to drink, which is the reputation it has among many people in England? I think. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not very much in the in the sales uh, part of it. But my impression is that uh, mm, the traditional ways of Andalusia, I mean, I, I, I don't like to talk about sherries. I know that when we say sherry, every, everyone understands more or less what we are talking about, but mm. it's very un, un, inaccurate. Be I, I prefer to talk about Jerez, about Sanlúcar, or about Manzanilla, or about Montilla, and so on, mm. because... Sherry, when we talk about sherry, people think more in the process than in the provenance. I, yeah. I like to stress the provenance. And I think I, I, I have made this, uh, this comment, this remark, because I think that the, this sherry revolution must go and has helped uh, to go on in that way, in way of, uh, um, um, Putting in first place those wines that reflects uh, yeah. a place. Probably the big sales numbers have not changed much because most of the wine that has been that, that was being sold around the world in in UK, in in the Netherlands, in Germany, and other countries was where uh, cheap. Uh, uh, blends of yeah. uh, sweetened wines, mm. which is not the cream. true character, yeah. like cream. cream or medium, yeah. out of yeah. creams or, or medium, that can occasionally be extremely good, extremely good, but uh, in most cases are, well, just average, are decent wines, cheap, decent wines, but that doesn't add much uh, prestige to the area. But you, you could still buy you could still buy a fino like you know um, La Gitana or Tio Pepe, which is Pepe. they're good wines, aren't they? You know, if were, uh, La Gitana obviously being 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 Mantania rather than fino, but yeah. I think those are, those are good wines and offer good things. I agree. Yeah. And, uh, I, Go on. Yeah, I I think that uh, well the sales of fino and Manzanilla, which have have always been the stars. In, in the market in, in Spain, 
are over overcoming uh, the sales of other of other styles. So in a way, I think there is sort of a revolution. Or it's a it's true. The revolution is true, uh, it, and it reflects more than in the overall numbers of sales in the structure of sales. And I think that's a good step. That's a good base for future. That's that's very interesting. Listen, our time is nearly up. So I'm dying to ask you a last question, which is you're a very busy man, right? You know, you're a professor of criminal law, criminology. Um, you've got Ikiva Navathos, which is a very successful business. How do you relax? How do you get away from it? Is, is relaxation for you still going to wineries? Is it reading? Is it eating? Is it helping your mother out? I don't know. What do you do to relax? Well, I I practice a lot of sports uh, oh, in the good. last few years. I have uh, sort of retaking my my teenager passion of uh, of doing sports. And uh, but it's I, it, that's a question that is it's interesting because at some time I reflected about uh, what I was really doing, and uh, I found out, and it's true, I can confirm it uh, looking at it uh, um, uh, retrospectively now that. Um, what has worked for me very well is that when I was doing wine, like writing an article or thinking about the next wine we were going to bottle with my with my colleague and partner Eduardo Heda and so on, I was sort of taking a rest from my job. I, I was doing it. It's really a hobby activity. It's something that I have been doing in my spare time. But then that allowed me, when I came back to my lectures or to uh, doing reading a, 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 a decision by a court or an article written by, by a colleague of mine, I was enjoying, because I like that very much, that I enjoy my, my, my profession, I was sort of relaxing from uh, wine. So, so the two help each other. I that's <laughs> that's what I think. I, I I'm yeah. sure it has worked with me. So I had never the feeling of being uh, seriously working. I mean, in the sense of having to do something that you you'd rather not do. It's something that I think I'd <laughs> rather do because I, uh, I was enjoying it. It helped me enjoy it. I think that's a fantastic note to end on. You never really feel as if you're seriously working because you enjoy what you're doing. Both bits of your life you enjoy so much. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much. We could talk for hours about Jerez with you, you uh, or and San Luca and Mantania and all these different things. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us and, and see you very soon. My pleasure, Tim. Always a pleasure to be with you. Bye-bye. Bye. What a fascinating deep dive into one of my favourite wine regions and do buy a copy of Jesus' book on the wines of Andalusia. Next week on Cork Talk, my guest is Anthony Hamilton-Russell from Hamilton Russell Vineyards in South Africa. Join me then. Thanks for listening to Cork Talk. If you want to read more reports, articles and tasting notes by me, go to my website, timatkin.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at Tim Atkin, and on Instagram, at TimAtkinMW. See you next week. <laughs>